When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Lowdown with Brave Mama. I am your host, Steph Thompson. It's confession time. My fellow listeners, ladies and gentlemen, The Lowdown with Brave Mama podcast really only had a vision of a season 22 phenomenal conversations with other women about pelvic health, trying to cover all aspects from birth trauma to pelvic organ prolapse, the legal system, everything that encompasses our everyday lives. Thinking that this would be the very last episode, I did decide to try and make it lighthearted. I invited a comedian, Elaine Miller from Edinburgh, to come on the show and make us laugh because just as heavy as pelvic organ prolapse can be emotionally, physically, mentally, I thought it would be a really nice way to wrap up the show and have a laugh because sometimes it can also be good to have a laugh, even with prolapse. So Elaine Miller will be joining us in just a moment. But before we do, I do want to say that as this podcast has evolved and as the show has gone on, It has made me realize something. We can't end it there. We can't just leave it at season one, 22 episodes of amazing conversations because we are reaching more and more women every single week. And every single week, we are helping more and more people. To stop that, I think would probably be a sin. So I'm really happy to announce that we are coming back for season two. Production will kick off in early 2022. This next season, we will be speaking with ordinary, everyday women just like me, and they will be sharing their extraordinary stories with you to inspire you, continue to educate you, help make you laugh and cry, and feel part of the Brave Mama community. I would love for you to hang around at the very end of our chat with Elaine Miller because I've done a little bit of a reflection from this season and go into a bit more detail about um, how it has affected and helped people and how you can be part of it too. So today I have grabbed a cup of Madame Flavors Luscious Licorice. Let's get into it. Okay, today we have Elaine. Welcome to the show. It's so lovely to have you all the way from Edinburgh. Thank you very much for having me on. It's an honour. Um, so tell us, Elaine, who who was Elaine before becoming a mama? Oh, yes. Um, back in the days when it was fun. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> I, I was a bit, I, I had a really good time actually. I had a nice wee life because I had a job that I really liked and I had, mm-hmm. um, 
I was a physio and I used to work for um, sports people. I used to work in elite sports. So I would get a phone call saying, can you come to Mallorca for three weeks to touch fit young men and we're (laughs) going to pay you to do it? So so it wasn't a bad life. It was quite good fun. (laughs) Um, And I I had a bit of travel because I had, you know, being a healthcare professional is basically a passport in itself so I had worked in New Zealand and I'd worked in Ireland and I'd been in England for a long time and yeah I I had a nice setup and um, then I started breeding and (laughs) really focused on (laughs) I had three kids in four years which was alcohol related and um, and each one's a blessing but yeah life life changed really dramatically because when I met my husband we went traveling for six months in a two-man tent around okay. the world and um, to go from that kind of doing a lot of adventure outdoor stuff to yeah. go from that to babies for years on end was a bit of a, an upturn. Back to back to back yeah within four years that sounds pretty hectic. Yeah I wasn't very good at it either. I wasn't, oh. it wasn't my finest hour with the, the baby stage is not my skill. Mm-hmm. I know lots and lots of women really enjoy it, but it seemed to me to be an awful lot of effort for very little return. <laughs> <laughs> we should like, probably just say straight up in this episode that you are an award-winning comedian. Uh, <laughs> so I think our listeners would like to know we're laughing and joking, but that's because we're meant to be. So yeah. <laughs> no, I'm I'm deadly serious. Those those infants were it takes them six weeks to smile at you. I mean, that's just rude. <laughs> six weeks before you get even a smile rubbish <laughs> yeah I, f- I find the baby bit quite hard but um they're older now it yeah, is hard it yes is. and I don't th- yeah I don't think you can um I don't think you can prepare yourself for it either it's it's brutal I think no matter what's written in the baby books or the pregnancy books about that newborn sleep deprivation as much mm. as you try and read, I think we've got this little bit of arrogance that goes, ah, that's not going to be me. I'm going to be running. I'm going to be jogging. I'm going to be, my baby's going to sleep all the night through because I read that book, you know, and we just have yeah. that that blissful ignorance, I guess it is, that when it hits you, it hits you like a, you know, 10-ton yeah. truck. Even when we went into, I had my kids in hospital. The the last one was supposed to be born at home, but he changed his mind about that. And um, when we went into the first one, the woman in the room next to me was making a lot of noise when we arrived because she was delivering a baby. And my husband's eyebrows were right up in his hairline going, have you heard that? Because it's quite disconcerting. And, um, And he said, listen to her. And then he said you'll not be like that because he thought it was a performance that this woman was doing he'd never heard anybody give birth and neither had I but after a couple of hours we realized that I could fair belt out a tune as well (laughs) yeah I I was amazing (laughs) I'd love to talk about um your birthing experiences and I can you know you've had three three children and were they similar or different 
No, very different. So the first one took a long, long time. All my kids were um, OP, you know, when they're back to back. Um, and I didn't know that until I started trying to deliver them. So the first one was a long labour. I think it was, it was about 20 hours. And it was a long second stage because she was moving, but it was very slow. Okay. And they're, they're supposed to not let you go for longer than I want to say two hours, but I'm not sure if that's right. I think that's Um, the maximum in that second stage, yeah. um, But we were well, well over two hours. I mean, it it was about three and a half hours of pushing to get her out. She was fine and I was fine and she was moving. So they let me carry on with it. Um, But that was was hard. Like, I, I remember being quite scared a few times because even though the care was really good, I had no idea what was going on yeah. and um, it just didn't seem to be making any progress. The second, one, <laughs> the second one was also very slow because he, she turned quite early in labour, so at least she was facing the right way up and that made it easier. Okay. The second one didn't turn until just before um, he was delivered, so right. that hurt that was yeah. that was really quite uncomfortable and I couldn't get comfortable at all I was on my knees and the midwife wanted me to turn on my side because I think that can help budge oh, the baby okay. along a bit yeah. and and I didn't want to do it because I was you know you get a bit stuck I was yeah. comfortable and I did not want to move but she persuaded me to turn on my side and it was so painful I vomited all over her <laughs> I, I felt quite bad about it and then I thought oh, well yeah. I told you I was fine where I was <laughs> Oh, feel oh, sorry goodness. for that midwife. Oh, um, yeah. See, no one, I just want to say, no one tells you that you vomit in birth. They, they talk about, you, or you can poo when you push the baby out, but don't worry about it because no one sees it. But I vomited a lot during yeah. my birth, and I was in that stuck phase. I just wanted to stand. I was like, don't touch me. I'm good here, but my legs weren't holding very well. Yeah. But then you start vomiting and no one, I don't, I've never read it anywhere. No, that's true. <clears throat> that's true they should probably have told that midwife as well because she could she could have ducked um <laughs> it's a really shame for her um I felt bad I was trying to clean it up I was like oh I'm so sorry I, I didn't know and yeah. you know like oh it was just yuck. it's not good for your oxytocin that is it <laughs> um trying to do housework when you're in labor <laughs> yeah that that pain thing you know how they say you forget the pain with him I, I definitely don't I remember thinking this must be what it was like. This is dramatic. This must be what it was like to be a Christian in the Colosseum in the time of the Romans, where they tore people apart with horses. I remember thinking that that no, I could I couldn't have done that either. I mean, that's insane, isn't it? You do think some bonkers things when yeah, you're yeah, having you a baby. Do. Of course. Um, and the third one was a comedy of errors because because I had. I didn't have a hard time with the second one. It was just long and it just really hurt. But we were on our own for a long time because yeah. the midwife was busy dealing with everybody else. And sure. I, I found that distressing because I was frightened. I needed yeah. some input. Yeah. Um, so I thought, well, I'll have the third one at home because two normal deliveries, you know, what difference does another one make? And in the UK, you get a midwife for you. And then when it gets to delivery, there's a midwife appears for the baby. So you're okay. guaranteed your own midwife and somebody to look after the infant when it's born. Okay. And because of where we live, we're only 20 minutes drive away from the hospital. So in an ambulance, it would be really, really fast. So I had it all worked out. Totally. And then 
I started having contractions with him at 36 weeks. So that was drama and I had to go into hospital for monitoring and get oh. steroid injections and the home birth was off, um, <clears throat> which was annoying because it was also my childcare solution because I had little kids, like the, <laughs> the youngest toddlers. one. The youngest one was not four until about two months after this new baby was being born so I thought wow. if I go into labor at night what am I going to do with you know a little toddler and a preschooler yeah I'll just have them at home anyway so we, there was a big drama with early labor signs and that wore off and then he was overdue so oh, wow. for <laughs> so I had these irritable uterus they called it where I would have contractions for sort of three hours at a time and they were proper contractions oh. and Everybody would think, right, this is it, the baby's coming, and then it would just wear off, would go oh, away. Wow. So by the time I <laughs> was two weeks over and they were talking about inducing me, I was exhausted because I'd been oh, in labour for a month. <laughs> <laughs> I went in for yet another check and um, just told the consultant, I am not leaving this hospital without a baby. You're going to have to do something about this because yeah. I've got to look after a newborn and I'm on my knees with exhaustion. So I, I think I had that angry woman look on my face and they just went, whatever, whatever you want. Sure. <laughs> um, so they induced me and, and that was fine. You know, you hear horror stories about inductions being really, really painful, but I think mm. I was just so grateful to be getting them evicted <laughs> that, yeah. that it suited me. But it wore off. So the contraction started for about 10 hours and then nothing happened. I didn't even dilate a single centimetre. And not oh. only did he not descend anywhere, he retracted up the birth canal. What <laughs> so is this boy? Just please tell me he just loves to snooze, you know, in the morning. He's like, oh, alarm, no, I'm going to snooze, keep sleeping. <laughs> it's not good. When you're about to have a baby and you're already planning putting him in the naughty corner for being a <laughs> that's going to affect bonding um so they said I would have to go home and come back in the morning for a cesarean section and by the time I stopped crying (laughs) then then labor started and that was great we were off (laughs) so I had quite a lot of drugs because it was sore it hurts I had whatever they give you the the morphine I was tripping off my face and it was brilliant. The, there was a bad storm outside and I kept singing. There's a Deacon Blue song. I don't know if you know Deacon Blue. They're a Scottish band that no. when I was a teenager, they were, it was huge. Yeah. And I kept singing this one song called Born in the Storm over oh, and over wow. and over again. So I was, I was doing my husband's nutting because I was just on loop. And this was going on for hours. And I'd go, oh, look, it's a storm. He's going to be born in a storm. And started singing because I was off my face morphine Um, anyway eventually I was needing some help the the, he wasn't moving I'd had an epidural which I hadn't had with the other two yeah and it didn't work properly so my leg was a bit floppy and I couldn't get comfortable the midwives bless them they're not allowed to just you know get your arms and move you because of manual handling rules but they did that they did it for me to make me comfortable but unfortunately the ratchet in the back of the bed was broken and we didn't know that until I leant against it and the bed collapsed (gasps) I fell off the bed oh my gosh (laughs) and that produced a spike in my intra-abdominal pressure which was enough to eject the baby (laughs) 
because <laughs> I went oh and he came flying out and he and he came out face up he hadn't turned oh, so that's why uh, it was taking so long so OP is the same as posterior isn't it yeah that's right okay it's yeah, the same thing yeah right. oh my god that's yeah. so painful I've had one of those it's so oh it was painful. awful you're back and I <laughs> It was awful. So I remember seeing him shooting out and his little face being Hello. one of surprise. Because <laughs> oh. he was flying through the air and he landed in the bed with a thump, which got him breathing. And the midwives were sort of grappling with my shoulders being to stop me from getting a head injury. It was very funny. Um, the, the, they were very apologetic. And I'm like, I think you should do some work into this as a way of you know bringing labour to an end because that was genius um and he had a very short umbilical cord which is the only reason why he didn't fall off the end of the bed it, oh, it was real really, oh my he came such force it's a great story and yeah. and and I became part of like an urban legend because with doing the comedy stuff about birth and things midwives were coming to it and this woman came and said to me oh I've got a great story for you this woman's bed collapsed and the baby was born and shoot off the end of the bed I'm like I am aware of that story it was me (laughs) and then they have to go check your undercarriage obviously to see what damage has been done and um (laughs) They pulled straws, right? They didn't, nobody wanted to go and look because they were expecting oh. it to be an unholy mess. Yeah. And then this woman popped up between my knees and went, you must have very stretchy tissue. There's barely a graze. Oh. And stretchy tissue. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Is that a compliment? <laughs> You've got a really elastic fanny. <laughs> it's all worked in the end, but it was a bit dramatic. A bit. Yeah. I, I that whole as you're saying that story, I mean, people obviously can't see my face, but my jaw is just dropping. <laughs> like I've never heard of this in my life. But no. wow, what well, a journey! The, the reason it happened is because it was he's a September birthday, so all the Christmas mad shaggers go in, <laughs> and we were the last people in. The the unit was full, and that's why they were reluctant to bring me in for an induction because they weren't sure they would have a bed. So it was actually sort of like a broom cupboard that I was in. They had an old bed and it had been clearly condemned. Oh my goodness. Oh, I hope he I hope he ended up being your your most well-behaved child after all of that. Yes, he's a little sparkle. He's a he's a good kid. He's one of life's sunshiny people. So that's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you've mentioned to us that you had obviously a background in physiotherapy have, and you've obviously moved into women's pelvic health space now. Have you had, I mean, you said you didn't get a graze with that last birth, but have you had some lived experience with pelvic floor dysfunction too? Oh yeah. I landed up with a a prolapse. Well, two, I had a rectocele and a cystocele. It's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. It was quite substantial. You're right. It probably could have been a mouthful if somebody was so inclined <laughs> to give it a wee sook. Um, yeah, I had prolapse and I had stress incontinence. It started after the second one properly. Like initially with the first one, there was a bit, but it went away. And then with the second baby, it was a problem. And I meant to do something about it and I didn't. And there was no excuse for that because I knew what I needed to do. I was just barely coping because I had two little kids and 
we were quite isolated as well, we'd moved to um, Edinburgh. So I didn't have any family or friends support here. So it, was, it wasn't much fun. Um, and then with the third one, I landed up with prolapse and did stupid things like the, my eldest was in primary school then. She, we start school at four in, mm-hmm. in Scotland and it was sports day. So I had a baby who was, you know, months old and the race for the mums at the primary school to show that you're, you know, willing and enthusiastic and supporting your kids. They make us do a sack race. So you get into a sack. Jumping around like a rabbit. So I thought, right, I can do this because their little faces like, mom, mom, can you do this? Um, So I thought, well, I'll just wedge my feet into the corner of the sack and I'll I'll waddle along because I knew I couldn't jump. Yeah. And even that, like halfway down the field, I just had complete loss of bladder oh. control, completely saturated myself, oh. stopped dead. There's like 300 people around the field, including my children. And there's something about when, when, a, when that happens to women, that other women understand, they know what's happened. So this sort of cloud of oh. other mothers surrounded me and ushered me into the toilet, which is the tiny little toilets, oh, yeah, tiny so. little <laughs> and, um and I didn't have a change of clothes for me because why would I? Um, so they, they sort of tidied me up. Somebody had a spare pair of leggings and I managed to, to get home. But oh, that was goodness. really quite embarrassing. Yeah. And that's when I thought, this is ridiculous because I'm a physio. I know what I should be doing and I'm not doing it. So if I'm not doing it, with the amount of education I've got and the amount of understanding I've got, if I still can't motivate myself to comply with this stuff, nobody else has got a chance. Um, So I became more interested in continence because I had insight into the impact it has on a woman's life. Oh my God, Um, yeah, 300 people looking at you. I don't think there's anything more impactful standing there. Yeah, it wasn't great. Wet knickers. It wasn't great. So, So yeah, I landed up. Plus, uh, when our middle kid wasn't very well for um, ever, for a number of years. So I needed a job that was a bit more flexible than what I'd had before. Um, And I thought there's a lack of women's health physios in Scotland. So maybe it would be strategic to go and specialise in that. Like I didn't have a huge calling to to specialise in this field. I just thought that will suit the other pressures that we've got in the family. And I'm guaranteed to be able to get a job. But the more I looked into it and the more training that I got, the more angry I got about the whole thing because it's just a feminist issue and we're leaving women behind. And Mm -hmm. we've known the answers for 40 years. And so why do we have so many pishy women? It's not acceptable. Um, So, yeah, I'm definitely in the right job. I do love it. It's really, it's very satisfying work. Were you able to, during that journey of learning more, able to help yourself and do the things that you say that you knew that you needed to do as well? Like with the women, were you able to work, you know what I mean? Yeah. I was genuinely surprised that that it worked. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds really stupid because it's all science-based and, you know, I've, I've got... I do understand the, the, the way that it works. I understand about evidence base. But when I started properly committing to just doing pelvic floor exercises and sorting out my constipation, yeah. I was amazed at how quickly it made a difference and this, the size of difference that it made to me. Um, that really within a short period of time, within about four months, certainly within six months, I, I was symptom-free. Wow. 
Do you mind and if I, I do you mind if yeah. I ask what grade of prolapse of rectus illness is to fill you? It's pretty mild, so it, it's okay. two, grade two. So yeah. enough to be bothersome, but not enough to need surgery. So yeah. I fall right into the category that if, if I look after it, then it shouldn't be a problem for the rest sure. of my life. If I don't look after it and it progresses, then there would be, you know, it would descend and I might need to have more input. Um, I got myself pessary, just an over-the-counter over the pessary for when I was exercising. Yes. And I did use that for more than when I was exercising in the early days because it did make me more comfortable. When you have but young kids the, to pick up, yeah. Yeah, it's almost impossible to avoid yeah. it, especially there's nothing in this world that's more heavy than a toddler that's refusing to get into a car seat like that. That yeah. That is a wriggly weight. It's very <laughs> difficult to handle. There's no way around it. So I did, I, I, there's work in Australia. There's a, a woman called Taryn Hallam, who I think is based in Sydney, who's just a you know genius women's health physio. And she's said that she thinks that postnatal women should be using pessaries as a preventative measure and I'm inclined oh, to agree yeah I'm, okay. I'm inclined to agree with her having tried it just by accident because I thought well what harm can it do it, it definitely made me more comfortable and if all it does is shove everything back up to where it should be then it when you're doing your pelvic floor exercises it's mechanically much easier yeah yes, so you I'm get good. better contraction so you get better strengthening so I'm quite relaxed about the prolapses because they're 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 not big, they're not dramatic. I did have three kids in quick succession. I am too heavy. I am, you know, I'm prone to constipation, so I've got all the risk factors. Yeah. Um, but the frustrating thing is that the nice guidelines in the UK, you know, that the NHS works on, they say that if you have got no symptoms from your prolapse, you shouldn't be referred on into into a referral system. Wow. So there's no prevention education for these women. There's no, yeah. here's what you need to do to look after it to mm. stop it from getting worse. We just gap. wait until we wait until the fanny falls out and then we get some nice surgeon to sew it back up again. And that's one lucky. of the things that I'm looking at. Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So I think considering the sort of um, postnatal history that I had, I got away really quite lightly. <laughs> Yeah. yeah I'm nodding I'm nodding a lot saying yes I think I think that's the confusion too even amongst our own women in the pelvic organ prolapse communities that sometimes the ones that may have a stage one or two sister seal they don't understand why other women are saying I'm 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 on the cliff's edge here I can't live like this anymore yeah. because generally those women are stage four they can't walk or stand or they've got colostomy bags or something yeah it's, it's such a such a varied spectrum of prolapse and the yeah. way it affects women it is hard to understand even us women don't understand <laughs> yeah you know and, and even women that have got like a small prolapse like a grade two some of those cause them a lot of trouble some of them get yeah. a lot of symptoms from quite a small flaw with the way that the organs are sitting and we don't understand why that is they, they mm -hmm. genuinely have suffering from what when you look at it doesn't look that bad and other times I've had women come into clinic where they've, they've, they've like a prosthodontia almost, like the whole thing has come out and it's excoriated because their, the their skin has dried and, oh, and it's, it must be exceptionally painful. 
I'm not expecting to see that sort of level of prolapse in a physio clinic because that's something that you need a surgeon for. So I'm looking at this woman's bare bum thinking, good God, like how long have you had that for? And it barely bothered her. It was amazing. All she did was shove it back up, but she didn't have pain. It was just an inconvenience and it was in the way. Yeah. And it was it was the, the the dermatitis that she had that was bothering her because it was yes, itchy, yeah, but it wasn't right. disabling. Wow. And I can't get my head around that and I can't find an explanation for it. Why one woman can have a tiny, tiny little shift that really interferes with everything she wants to do. And another woman is practically dragging her cervix along it. Yeah. Her. Yeah. And, and she's like, yeah, it's a bit annoying. Do you think there's anything I can do about that? Wow. It's really weird. And I haven't seen any research into it because we don't we well, don't, we really don't talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like that woman, if it didn't bother her, potentially there's a whole lot of other women out there where it's not bothersome. So they just yes. wear it in their knickers and, and they think, well, why research this? Because it's just the way it is. Yeah. You know? Yeah there's, yeah, there's a lot of women that just accept, well, I've had children, this is what happens. And the myths are quite hard to to break through and say no there's help available you don't need to put up with it yeah yeah and I know you mentioned just earlier how when you were learning about this it made you quite frustrated and upset that when you learned the extent of it and you've gone and done something that is probably um, a little bit different to what I've seen other women's (laughs) health physios do and I love that I love to talk about that so I've seen a picture of you wearing a giant vulva. Let's talk about giant vulvas. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's a strange skill mix. Um, I had a hobby of stand-up. So when when the kids were little and our son was quite unwell for a long time, I needed to do something to stop myself from going crazy. And there was a bunch of us at the school gate who were all approaching 40 I think we're about 35 and we were talking about achieving something before we were 40 and one was going to do a marathon and one was going to go back and finish a degree and I said I would do stand-up because once upon a time I was at a party in London and a guy was listening to me telling a story about a terrible date that had and he happened to run a comedy club in London and he offered five minutes on the stage because I was meaning to be funny you know, yeah, <laughs> I studied Glasgow. Glaswegians are hilarious. You you have to be funny to survive in Glasgow. So he wanted me to do five minutes. I was like, no, don't be ridiculous. There's no way I'm doing that. But yeah. because he said that for the next twenty years, whenever yeah. I saw comedy, I thought I could do that. That's not that hard. That guy said <laughs> I would do stand up, and I absolutely loved it. And I was so naive. I entered a competition for newcomers because it said newcomers, yeah. but newcomers in comedy terms means hoping to get an agent and a tv deal so I rock up going oh no it's my first gig and they're all like what (laughs) um so don't worry about me it's just a one-off it's just cannon fodder I'm not really here for a competition and I got (laughs) through I got through to the semi-finals which really annoyed me so I loved it because it was something to go out and it was very different and very different from life with small kids and hospital appointments and drama and at work a woman told me a story about a time when she wet herself on the doorstep in front of her neighbor and that should be a horrible traumatizing event for any woman but she was Glaswegian so it was really funny the way she told it (laughs) and she's using humor as a coping mechanism but of course 
I said to her, can I use that story on stage? She knew I did stand up. So I wrote just like a five minute set about that. But I didn't say that it was my job. And after I came off the stage, four women in a bar said to me, oh, me too. And I thought that's interesting because they don't go and speak to their GP, but they'll tell a stranger in a bar. And maybe you can use humour to address any taboo as long as you make it funny. So maybe I can use comedy as a way of accessing the women who don't come to clinic. Um, It takes an average of seven years for a woman to come to physio for Wow. pain or incontinence or a prolapse long time of suffering it's a very long time it's a very very long time and that's average like I I've seen loads of women in their 60s that have had symptoms since the babies were born yeah um and so I wrote you, the show so is it and do you think it's because especially that seven years it's they're too busy giving 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 to the family and to the children and raising these little people even at 60, you assume that hopefully those children have now left home. They're like, right, now I can look yeah. after me. Wow, yeah. that's a long time to wait for you. No, you're absolutely right. The, the problem, I think, with women recognising there's an issue is they're too busy, they're sleep deprived, they're firefighting all day when the kids are little, trying yeah. to find the right welly and get reasons out of noses and all of these things that you didn't really expect to happen in your day. Um, <laughs> And also women are used to dealing with pain and mess and pads. So it's not that big a change in lifestyle to have to accommodate this. Whereas for men, if men become incontinent, it's often overnight because they've had prostate surgery and they're absolutely horrified and they find it completely unacceptable. And they're much better patients because of that, (laughs) because they do what they're told. Whereas women... It needs to get to a point where it's actually interfering with everything that you want to do before yes. you make time to go and get this looked at. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, it's really, and also recognizing that this isn't going away because, oh, it's just a leaky new mum. It's just mm-hmm. what happens after you've had a baby, it'll settle down. And mm-hmm. before you know it, your kid's in high school and you've still got still pain, yeah. still wetting yourself. And those years just flash by. So, yeah. There's only there's a good study that's um, from I think it's Sweden that says that 25 percent of women ever seek help for their incontinence. Wow, that's oh my god! And considering we've got what is it? The latest is one in two women will be affected by prolapse. Yeah. Um, Can you have incontinence without prolapse? Do you know? Yeah. Yeah. If you if you've got stress incontinence, then that can be completely unrelated to prolapse. If you've got overactive bladder, then that can be unrelated. But if the if your pelvic floor is not able to support the pelvic organs properly, then you've you've probably got a bit of stress incontinence going on, but it can be separate. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Interesting. So you've got this big costume that you wear and you wrote this show tell us a little bit about that so you're using comedy to help women feel like they can not be so embarrassed and then go and see their health provider yeah yeah so the aim is exactly that what I want is women leaving the show knowing what normal is and knowing what they can do to help themselves and where to go if that doesn't work. So it's just what we would tell women in clinic. It's all evidence-based. Just using fart jokes <laughs> to do it. <laughs> and I've got stories that I've sort of adopted from patients that I did ask them, but they're not named, obviously, but I yep. use that with myself. So the joke is on me. Okay. Everything 
it's very difficult to make this stuff funny because the people that you want to reach are quite vulnerable. Oh, 100%. The folk that have got problems with continents are, are really, really nervous about being mocked because it's so embarrassing. So the only way to make it funny is to make the joke land on me every time. And the first thing I say to them is I'm not going to ask you any questions. And it's really interesting because when you've got a room of like 300 people and they're all nervous because it's comedy and their perception is that you're going to be picking on people in the front row. Yeah, yeah. That's why that that's my first line. I'm not going to ask you any questions. And you can see their shoulders relax because, yeah, oh, it's all right. It's safe now. It's all right. Um, so... It's been a lot of fun and it does, it's called Gusset Grippers and the, 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 the punchline is the big dressed up vulva where I sort of go through the vulval anatomy and sing a song about vaginal prolapse <laughs> um, and it upstages me every time. I was a bit, I wasn't really nervous about doing it, but the first year that I did it, I didn't think I would get an audience because it was at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is the biggest arts festival in the world. There's 4,000 shows on in Edinburgh for a month. The average fringe audience is eight because there's so many shows, so many people come, but there's a lot of shows on. So I had 120 people at weekends in my show, which I'd like to think is because I'm hilarious, but um, it's because I'm local. I knew where the mums were. So I messaged around all the parenting groups and all the soft plays and all of the the (laughs) different places where mums are hanging out. And they were desperate for the information. Of course. So when I had that number of people, I thought this is going to work because they're really remembering what I'm saying. I can see them nudging each other in the yeah. audience because they come <laughs> in groups of friends. So this woman saying to her pal, she's talking about you there. You know, the key in the door thing. <laughs> the whole room's just with women nudge them. That's you. You need to get that sorted. Um and because of the numbers that I had, and I was, you know, an unknown, I'm just an open spot comedian, that caught the eye of producers and venues because they want bums on seats. Yes. So I got offered a place, a proper venue. There's different ways that it works in the fringe, but you can have a big venue. And, um, and I did it the following year and I got five stars and the whole run sold out, which yeah. is how I was invited to Australia. So on the back of that, would you like to come to Adelaide? Which the answer to that is obviously yes please um <laughs> but I came out on my own and went to Perth and Melbourne and the show won the comedy award at Fringe World Bravo. which I, I was delighted with because it was a bit validating in itself like it's flattering anyway but some of the physios weren't very happy that I was using comedy because they they were this is an assumption on my part but my impression is they were worried that I was taking the, the piss <laughs> taking yeah, yeah. the mickey out of women <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think they, they, they were worried that I was being unprofessional and picking on people, which wouldn't be very funny. Um, so after that, I met the researchers at Melbourne um, Monash University, Professor yes. Scuteris, and she's been looking at obesity in pregnancy. She's really interesting. She's very like you know, sometimes you just meet some women and you're like oh my word you're just so cool um so she recognized that there was a parallel between the shame and stigma with women's health problems and the shame and stigma that surrounds obesity it's a double, so she yeah yeah she wanted to look at whether humor could be used whether what i was doing 
could yeah. be proved to work. And so we did a literature review that was published yesterday in an oh. actual peer-reviewed journal. I know, I'm delighted. That is amazing. So now I've got evidence that this stuff works, that it does um, have an imp- it can influence people's behaviour. So what I need to do is prove that the show is not just a piece of nonsense, that it's an intervention, that yeah. for, some, for some women, they will listen to the message that comes from health promotion. If yes. it's done through a, a, a comedic way, it, they retain the information better and they, they feel more comfortable with it. So they're more receptive to, to what you want them to do. And if you think about it, me sitting down talking to my male GP is a Mm -hmm. lot more confronting than me sitting with my five girlfriends or one girlfriend on a night out without the children. Yes. No, nice dress, watching some comedy. To think about all the barriers you have just smashed down to be able to get that information directly to mums. That is brilliant. Yeah, it's amazing because they always come in groups, almost always it's little social groups. So they they set up an informal support network. Women are very, very good at that. They're very good at looking after their friends and following up, saying, You said you were going to go and see the doctor. When are you going? I'll come and look after your kids for the afternoon. You've got to go and do that. So, So so the dynamic's really different from a clinical setting. And uh, I am biased but I do think that there's something in it so we're we're hoping to do a bit more work and see if we did a public health campaign that was actually funny there's lots of in the paper we looked at stuff that they've done in Australia with your road safety campaigns which there's something that were really witty yeah um and it worked so why can we not do the same thing for fannies because it is embarrassing most people they don't have the language because they don't know the terminology because we just use slang. And um, I think it's got a bit of potential to break down the tools. And then, yeah, like your work, it's just getting women talking. That's what you're doing. You get women talking about it and then they can seek help. You know, it's funny. It was only after I'd published my book, my mother's group, we only had five in us. So we were very well we were very close-knit and we went on to have our second babies around the same time so we're still in contact but they were a bit like oh why didn't you tell us Steph because we could have helped you more and I had to say well I I didn't know the words to say for something I didn't understand I didn't understand what was actually happening to me so I couldn't sit there as the children were rolling around on the floor saying hey my blood is hanging out of the opening of my vagina what are you having for dinner you just yeah. don't, you just don't do that, you know. But yeah. having that that nice circle, enjoying a night out, I just think it's amazing. Can you share with us one of um one of your funniest moments that has kind of stayed with you on stage? Oh, that's a good question. Um, There's probably so it, many. It's it's um it's the gay men. I landed up with this odd following of like bears, you know, like the big, big hairy bearded gay men and I couldn't understand why they were coming to show about you know vulvas because generally speaking most gay men aren't that interested in vulvas and they they like every this was the last fringe in Edinburgh every night there was a group of maybe half a dozen enormous rainbow covered men and um after the show one of them came over because they wanted a photo 
they wanted a photo of themselves with a with big fan vulva. <laughs> so they could send it to their mum <laughs> and say look mum I've got news for you I'm back in the back in the cupboard um <laughs> back in the closet that's the word so yeah they they really puzzled me I could not fathom why on earth these gay guys would come, but they were they were great fun. But they were they they were a bit rough on my on my vulva. They, they didn't know what they were doing. Oh. <laughs> Where does one find a giant vulva? By the way, this is just a sign. I'm thinking, did you get did you make it or did you did you find it to buy? My friend has um, set up a little business. Um, she has a child that's got a genetic condition, so he has quite profound needs, and she couldn't get clothes that would fit him that she could get on and off of me he's got quite a lot of spasticity so she set up a company to make adaptive clothing so the seams are underneath the arms and in this um sorry the the joins in the seams instead of buttons it all works with velcro so I said to her I know you're really busy you know getting funky looking clothes that you actually want to dress your son in that are also suitable for changing them um but could you make me a big vulva would that be okay and um she she was great this year shows a, a new show called viva your vulva and it's an interactive suit so as we it's a walking tour and i assemble a vulva as we go so the like the labia minora are on magnets so it just clicks into place. And my friend's daughter's doing costume design at university for theatre stuff. So I said to her, do you want a project? Because I'll pay you to make me this suit, but it needs to just click on and off. And she's she's nailed it. It's brilliant. Um, <laughs> so I'm aiming to have a whole wardrobe of different, different types ones. of velvet yeah, yeah. for occasion. It'll be like a little black dress. <laughs> That's awesome because all of our vulvas actually look different. We just don't know that because TV shows us one type, which is perfect and neat and beautiful, but no one's vulva really does look like that until you see things yeah. like the, you know, vagina museum where they've got all the castings and things. You think, oh, no, actually, yeah, mine is pretty normal. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a really good resource in Australia at the Victorian um, Continents Resource Centre and um, it's called the Labia Library. So if you, like, they get central funding and they've created this resource, which I think is just brilliant. It's just photographs of women's bodies, just their front on and their underneath view of a vulva and all different shapes and sizes and races and ages. Love it. And you can just see which one you look like. And it's, it's absolutely genius. I send I women to it all the time. Labia Library. I, I think it's that. I think it's labialibrary.org.eu. Okay, um, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to put yeah. it in the show notes too because I think that women need to just find a click and make it really easy before someone yeah. walks in the room and they're like, oh, I'm not looking at anything, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's a good one because it's not designed to be titillating. You know, it's not it's not like the rest of the stuff that you'll find on the internet. Yeah. I'm not saying it's not titillating. Like, you know, if, if you like the look of a fanny, it's probably <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, a- you'll probably get more out of it. But from yeah, my yeah. from my curiosity point of view and a reassurance point of view yes because we have gps now that every gp in the uk will have at least one inquiry a week from a woman looking for labiaplasty isn't that horrible it's so horrible. It's horrible there's a um i only learned via a podcast here in australia from the abc could ladies we need to talk that the reason why we see labias on tv is perfect is because there's a law that says you can't see in the internal of a labia. So yeah. 
in pornography, you can see a man's everything, but you yeah. are not allowed to see a woman's labia. And I'm thinking that's yeah. got to change because that's what's getting these women wanting to have yeah. these plastic surgeries. What a joke. And yeah. it's very Western, that idea that, that labia shouldn't be external. My friend's from Zimbabwe, and when she was 12, her mum sat down for the period talk and then mm -hmm. explained to her she had to start stretching her labia because you've got to do it. They've got to get, you've got rubbish, tiny labia. We need to get bigger labia or else you'll never get married. And they had labia stretching sessions after school where her and her little friends would go and sit around in a group and try and get wow. these big monster labia sorted so they would be attractive and and she attributes that to her realization that in fact she's a lesbian <laughs> because if you're sitting in a little group with all your friends with their bits hanging out <laughs> I, get, I guess that would clarify a thing or two for you in your mind <laughs> yeah oh so, goodness and how do you feel that, um, and I'm sure you've had feedback before in its award-winning comedy shows, but when we're talking about transferring that in mainstream media, how is it being received? Yeah, it's been much better received than I would have thought. Okay. Um, I thought that there would be a problem with just using the, the correct terminology, the correct language, even saying vulva or, or you know, even being a bit flippant and saying fart, but I seem to get away with it. I think because I'm a bit mumsy and older, I'm not trying to be edgy, I think. And also because I'm qualified, yes. I, can, <laughs> I can milk that a bit. <laughs> like, like I'm not just cheeky. There's a point to this. Um, yeah. And also there's been such a change in the last few years where newspapers in particular, so printed medium are under real pressure. So they need to sell their products and women are 51% of the market. So yeah. when I first started with this stuff, I wrote an article for a red top newspaper here. I almost got it published, but the editor then said, no, I'm not having smelly old women in my newspaper. And he pulled it. And that's totally changed because they've realized that women are purchasing their products. So if you put in content that women really, really want to know, the engagement goes up. Yeah. Um, and the 50th, yeah, the 50th best diet that they've seen years and years and over is really getting old fast but learning about right. incontinence is definitely something people want to read yeah in private yeah. even yeah yeah so it's just numbers and if you've got something that that women of all ages are interested in well they're they're going to read it aren't they and clicks means points and in, in media nowadays clicks means money so yeah it is it is becoming increasingly easier yeah, mm. I feel like there has been an inertia even in the conversation since 2019 to now. We, we feel more okay to talk about periods and menopause and things as if it's not a dirty word, and I love that. Yeah. I think that yeah. there's still a few to come on board, especially here in Australia. We're a bit, you know, I, I loved the other day I was doing a radio interview and this um the DJ announced my book and he said vagina and I the first thing I said to him was bravo young man because a lot of people would have just said oh yeah she wrote a book about childbirth and not say the yes. title and I said well done to you for saying the word because the more we say it the the you know the more desensitized we can become to going oh that's ooh, yes you know that yeah. type of thing yeah. yeah I need to find a sociologist to have a look at why we're so reluctant to use the words the, the the show that I did this year um 
is because there was a YouGov survey that found that 50% of UK women don't know the difference between their vulva and their vagina, which is crazy because what the survey didn't do was ask those women if they can tell the difference between a penis and a testicle, but I reckon 100% of them can. So why are we teaching women more about men's bodies than about their own? Do you want to know something funny? (laughs) I tell this story often because... I talk about, I tell my daughter what her vulva is now, but it's obviously the Gwyneth Paltrow goop episode here in Australia when, you know, they were saying, you don't know the difference between your vulva. And we all laughed at her going, oh my God, she doesn't even know. But then in secret, we're like, shit, is it different? Let's Google that. Is it different? (laughs) (laughs) We really didn't know. I didn't know at 35 because we've only ever called it vagina. We've only ever called it one word. And that's, it's language that's now changed in my own house is that my daughter now knows that there's a difference and, um, but it still can be unpopular with yeah. my age group, 40 plus, you know, we're still, yeah. in, oh, do they really need to know all of that? Well, yes, they do. Um, but it is very interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. I don't mind slang. Like I don't mind women using all sorts of cutesy terms. I, I, yeah, it's fine. As long as you also have the right nouns. Although you can take it a bit far because I was on a mission with, I've got a daughter, my first is a girl. And so she knew the names for everything. And when she, <laughs> when she <laughs> fell off her bike in the park, she was only little, she was about four and the handlebars hit her, right? You know, it oh. really hurts when the handlebars get you right in your crotch. Yeah. And she shouts across the park, mum, mum, that really hurts. The handlebars got me right in my mom's pubis. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's- that's too much. <laughs> There's all these other mothers judging me, going, "What did she say?" <laughs> That's too much. Well, probably. Do you know what, Elaine? I bet you that your daughter actually educated those mums that they had a what? What's that? And they went, and like, "What is that? Do I have one of them? Let me see." You know, <laughs> because we don't know. We're too scared to say that we don't know because we've never been taught it, though. That's the thing, right? It's so, crazy. Let's talk about how we can make it better for our girls because my girl's only five. I'm on this journey to make sure that she is in a better place than I was at 35. But I know that there are some mums that give me that little smirk like, oh, yeah, you think you can do it all. Wait till she's a teenager. She won't want to talk to you about anything. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I would recommend recommend getting a vulva suit and and (laughs) doing that because... School pickup. <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> so when do you think we should be talking to our daughters about, I mean, obviously you talk to your, your children quite younger than the, the standard. When is a good time to start saying? Well, in Scotland, they start sex ed at six. So they get taught the proper, in fact, in nursery school, they get taught the proper terminology so that it's clear because, you know, not not all children have happy circumstances and happy backgrounds. So if somebody Mm. is behaving inappropriately with a kid, they need to have a, a, if they tell somebody, it needs to be really clear. There was a a case here where a, a child was talking about her uncle messing about with a flower and they thought it was about gardening. It didn't get picked up that this child was, you know, needing some help. Um, So the government in Scotland are quite clear that children must know the proper names for their bits. And I I don't see why we shouldn't at all, Mm -hmm. because 
then it's normalized. You would tell them what an elbow is. They know what a knee is. Um, The thing that they've just brought in here last year into sex ed as a trial is about female sexual pleasure because that's been missing. So we have taught young girls that are what they would be 14. um, Well, it'd be earlier than that in primary school. In primary school, they get taught about periods and boys get taught about wet dreams. Mm Mm-hmm. So we just tell the girls about the functional stuff that happens and nothing about like sex is supposed to be fun. Whereas boys are straight away, they're getting told about orgasm. So when they're 14 and starting to do sex ed in high school, they're getting taught about what a clitoris, well, they should be getting taught about what a clitoris is and about what it's for. Because unless we focus on female sexual pleasure, we have a real problem in Scotland, particularly because the young boys just do what they see in porn and the girls are getting they're they're getting hurt yeah so and there's no consent there's no consent to do the things that boys are wanting to do and the the things that they see and think they should be doing yeah the girls don't know they think oh that's just what happens because i just know i get my period and i just have to have sex and do what they say like it's yeah. yeah Oh. And the boys, the boys aren't being monsters. Like the boys are not, you know, nasty, horrible people. Nobody's mm. told them how sex actually works. So I'd like to see it go a bit further, actually, and have fourteen-year-old boys and the girls taught what an erection actually is, like how it happens mechanically, mm-hmm. and what normal is, and why it goes away. Because if they know that that's a normal setup then if it goes wrong for them they are also more inclined to seek help um the i think it's a pretty similar situation in australia but the biggest cause of premature death in men under 50 in scotland is suicide mm. and we don't know why but i'm sure that there must be a link to do with what their sexual function is doing because a lot of men they get confused you know if the if their willy's not working they seem to think that they themselves are worthless yeah. and it yeah. really affects their mental health yeah so i i think that just being frank and saying this is a bit of your body for the girls you have a clitoris that's designed for pleasure it doesn't do anything else it's completely unique as an organ it's the only organ that exists in a human body that doesn't have a function except for to make you happy um I love that, that in itself is pretty cool information. You don't get one, boys. No, 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 no. Yep. Because otherwise we're going to land up in a situation where, you know, people are... Sexual function is part of being an adult mm-hmm. and it's been messed up for this generation of kids because we're allowing them to be educated by porn and that really That's worries scary. me. scary. Yeah. yeah. That is so, really scary give them a wee map. What I would do is give them a mirror and a map and a bit of lube and some homework and we go and figure that out. Yeah, I I just, it's funny, isn't it? That I I never looked in the mirror and it wasn't until after childbirth when I smelt something funky going on. I had to look, but I I still didn't want to look. I was like, oh, I don't want to look down there. But I think we did, like you said, just give your child a mirror and say, have a look at it, experience Mm -hmm. it, you know? And I, I love that we're actually seeing things like, that goop episode where she talks to that sexologist from the US and she explains how to explore your own body and that it's not naughty to do that. It's okay. Yeah. No. Um, So what do you think are some of the things that women right now can be doing to improve their overall pelvic health? 
the if they knew what normal was, if it doesn't fit within that, they would they should go to the doctor. So leaking of any kind, whether it's pee or poo or farts, is abnormal. Okay. For anybody of any age, both sexes, doesn't matter. Um, most people can get help. They might not be completely cured, but their situation can always definitely be improved. So okay. sometimes just being a bit better makes a massive difference to somebody's life. Yeah. Um, I think that they should get lube. I think all women should be given a prescription for lube at 40. If they haven't used it before, they should definitely start at the, by the age of 40 because once your estrogen starts to tail off with menopause, then things can change downstairs. Okay. And I think that the companies that sell lube that have got tingly stuff and warming stuff should be shut down because that has got either mint or chili pepper in it. That's what makes the sensation. Wow. And we don't need to be putting toothpaste up our chuff, thanks very much. It's good for you. <laughs> oh my gosh, I never knew that. Oh wow. Yeah. You don't want anything that's made with WD forty. No. Um yeah, something that's pH neutral and doesn't have any additives in it is is ideal, but it definitely makes everything more comfortable and it can make things much more pleasurable. So women should be using loop. They should be um as rote. I think we need sex ed for yep. 45-year-olds because yep. things change and why why do we not have a vehicle to tell women about menopause yeah because if, if you've lived long enough you're going to go through it and yeah why is that why is that not education basic education because if you can get the stuff sorted at that point in our life then the rest of our life is easier and continence is the biggest measure of quality of life for older people Wow. And it's the most, it's the second most common reason that an older woman would have to move into residential care after dementia. Wow. And we don't know how many of those women just had a, a bit of a prolapse like I had that was never managed. Could and have so been. by the time she's 85, she cannot cope at home with her symptoms and she has to move into care. Oh, goodness. So women should just not put up with it. Have a, have a fiddle about, see what you like, and give decent education about this is what is normal. Oh, and bowels, sort your constipation out. Yes. Because if you sort your constipation out, your prolapse is a lot easier to manage. Yes, we have a lot of conversations about that in our, you know, private women living with prolapse group. And I've just, there's one lady I've interviewed for this podcast who I love it because she's taught me this method at work every single time and then I taught it to my children who ate too many lollies um it's called ucha so I know there's the moo poo that a lady um, Michelle Kenway's done here which used to help a lot but ucha that making that sound on the toilet you can literally just feel your poo go boop, blop. <laughs> yes yes so good so good I heard about that recently, actually. Somebody told me about that at a show and I hadn't come across it and I meant to Google it. So thank you for the reminder. Yeah. It does make sense because you're reducing the intra-abdominal pressure with the ooh and then, and then the ch- ch- it's enough it's forced. You, your stomach kind sense. of does this push. Yeah, like yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to demonstrate it, but no one can see, which is ridiculous. <laughs> they are doing it. They are doing yeah. it when they're listening and they're going, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah look elaine it's been amazing um, wonderful talking to you if our listeners are wanting to know more about your viva la vulva or your gusset grippers show or just your journey in general where could they find you oh i need to sort my website out it's coming it's i'm at www 
gus at grippers.co.uk but I am attempting to improve my website because I did it myself and it shows so um, (laughs) I think Christmas I should have it all tidied up Um, but I'll keep the link so I think think it'll change to Elaine Miller um, because you know I'm supposed to be a sensible person as well I'm supposed to be doing stuff for the government and Maybe gusset grippers isn't quite corporate enough. <laughs> <laughs> Could definitely be a tab, though. You need to still keep it there. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, yeah. I'm quite fond of it. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been so enlightening. And it's really nice, actually, just to be able to. I feel good. Like, we've had a good laugh about something so serious and generally so crap to live with every day. But it's nice to have a light moment. So thanks for sharing that with us. Well, thanks for your work, because it's so important to get women talking about this and it does make a difference. We see that in clinic. We get a spike of referrals after somebody's heard somebody like you on the radio. So keep at it. There's a lot of women to tell. We will keep fighting the fight. My new favourite thing is saying when we know better, we can do better. Yes. Yes, that's true. Yeah, because everyone's doing their best. Everyone's trying really hard until they know something new. Even throughout talking to women here, I'm like, oh, I'm going to try that. Oh, I'm going to do that. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> and then you do, you can do better. Yeah. So, yeah, well, we, we would love to have you back out in Australia one day when we have the world is reopened. And yes. I can tell you that we, anyone listening to this will be coming to your show for sure. <laughs> I hope so. all right you enjoy the rest of your day thank you elaine thanks day nice speaking to you bye this brings us to the end of season one of the lowdown with brave mama what an adventure so many wonderful conversations with women around the world We've had lots of tea and tears and talking truth. It's been liberating to be able to be real and dig deep into women's health topics that we all seem to go through and yet feel really alone. Throughout this journey, I've certainly learned a lot about my own body and how it works. And I've also worked out that I still need to go and find out so much more. The real key light bulb moment for me was probably realizing that In our culture, women throughout history have not been sharing this knowledge about their bodies because they probably simply didn't understand it themselves. We know this is coupled heavily with the taboos in our culture, which has contributed to our silencing or dismissing, but just maybe there is an element of not knowing actually what to say or when or how. We do hope that the women's stories throughout this season have given you the knowledge or even just the curiosity to want to find out more knowledge and then share this with the important people in your close circle. There are no reasons to keep this secret women's business anymore. I'm now going to be taking a little bit of time off to do some of these courses mentioned in this season and reflect and prepare for season two. I'll let you know when to pop the kettle on for our next chat. Until then, I just want to do a couple of little thank yous to wrap it up. I want to give a special thanks to all of our amazing 22 guests. Without your vulnerability, bravery, courage, 
announced to want to come on the show and talk about the things you have, there would be no show. I'd like to also thank the team at Swinburne University for taking on this project and helping me really put everything together to make it the success it is today. I also want to thank Podbean, who are our hosts, who have been nonstop supportive with my a million questions about how to make things work. They've been phenomenal. A very special thank you to our sponsor and partner in Madam Flavor. To Corinne and Chris, I have absolutely loved working with you on this season and hope that we continue sipping tea and talking women's health next year. Dave Stokes is my producer. He has been with me for quite some time. He also produced my audiobook and we are friends. I really have this connection with him where he can call me and say, hey, this is happening in the episode or I can call him and say, I don't know what's going on here. It goes beyond that. He has been with me, literally holding space for me and having really good conversations about how he himself, he has a daughter, how he himself really has learned so much about women's health and he thanked me for it. That to me speaks volumes and that's what we're all about. To my family who have been locked outside many Saturdays during lockdown so I could record these episodes, I love you. You know I love you. But I also really, really appreciate you. There is no way we'd be able to get through season one and 22 episodes had I not kept you out the front yard with dad. So thank you to my husband for saying yes and just supporting me every which way he can. And last but certainly not least, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for continuing to come back and tune in to every episode. Even if it might not be so relevant to you, you're here, you're showing up, you're being brave, you're sharing it with people because you think it helps. And for that, I am eternally grateful. And emotional, actually. (laughs) I really, really am thankful. Until next year, I wish you all a very safe and well break over this festive season, however you choose to celebrate. Come back next year for more amazing conversations. Until then, bye for now.